Hey, it's Ian Altman. Before we dive into this week's episode, do me a favor and stop by and visit GiversEdge.com. There are only a few gifts I've received over the years that really stood out, and they were all sourced by the ruling group who you can find at GiversEdge.com. Hey, it's Ian Altman. Today, we're joined by Tom Webster. Now, Tom's the Vice President of Strategy and Marketing for Edison Research. You know them probably because they're the people behind the exit polling for U.S. national elections. And we're going to talk specifically about how you get insight about your audiences, the misconceptions that people had about the most recent presidential election in the United States, how bias plays a role in different polling, and how you can get the right type of qualitative and quantitative information to really put the finger on the pulse of your audience. I'm telling you, it's amazing insight, and Tom's one of the few guys on the planet who can talk about statistics and data in a way that's inviting, interesting, and engaging. Tom Webster, welcome to the show. Ian, thank you. I am uh, very honored and privileged to be your guest today. I'm excited. Dude, it's, it's not an honor and a privilege. That would be on someone else's show, but on this show, we're fortunate to have you here. <laughs> no, you know, I don't get out much, um, so... <laughs> You know, any, any any podcast in a storm. Uh, no, I'm I'm really happy that you asked me to be on the show because I, I do, you know, I love I love your show. I think uh, you have a, a great voice for your audience. And, you know, I'm I'm happy to serve however I can. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you, especially the timing of it all, because as as people heard in the intro at at Edison, you guys do all of the exit polling for Mm. the presidential election. And I know there's a lot of discussion from people saying, oh, Trump broke polling, and now market research doesn't work. So what are all the great misconceptions? And let's dive into what some of those misconceptions are and what we really learned about polling in this past presidential election. Yeah, so, I mean, it was a, it's a, it's kind of a complex stew. I mean, with us, we did we were only responsible for the exit polls. So if you watched, uh, you know, any television network on election night and heard them talk about exit polling data, all of that came from us. We didn't do any of the pre-election polling work. Uh, and you know, there's a, a couple of things about Trump. You know, he didn't break polling, but he was uh, what we would call a black swan. And one thing that we definitely saw in the pre-election polling was that there was a bias in certain kinds of polls against Trump. And this is much clearer in hindsight now, but uh, and it's you know something that, that we've coined the, the social desirability bias. And Trump did very well in online polls where you could just click, you know, click a little button for I vote for Trump as opposed to I vote for Clinton. But in telephone polling, which is actually kind of the gold standard in polling, uh, if you have telephone polling with both landline and mobile, it's really the most representative kind of polling there is. There was clearly what we have called a social desirability bias of people who were actually in favor of Trump, who were unwilling to say it to another human. And and Tom, would the would the people who don't didn't study as much statistics or econometrics as I did, can mm. you explain what bias means? Because I think and and I want people to realize that we're going to tie back how all this applies to your business and how you can use this in business, in in market analysis and in um, in a whole variety of market research applications. 
But first, just talk about what bias is and how you think um, how you think that skewed perceived outcomes. Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, bias is a is a huge part of my day to day life. I mean, the only you know, the least biased survey in America is the census. And you only get that once every 10 years. So if you're a business and you want to find out the you know, the potential market for a product or service, and you're not going to be able to afford the census. Let's just get that out of the way. So <laughs> any survey that you do is going to have some kind of bias, right? If you do an online survey, it's A, going to leave out people who are not active online. And, you know, 15% sure. of Americans don't even have Internet access, let alone those who, you know, would not necessarily participate in a survey. So everything has a bias. And however... Just because there's no perfect study or no perfect way to ask a question doesn't mean you shouldn't ask it. And that's, you know, that's the thing that I, I struggle with every day is people coming back and saying, well, this survey is not perfect. Uh, you, you didn't talk to these people. You didn't talk to those people. And you, you can say, no, we didn't. But what we have is not nothing. Uh, what you have to do is be able to slot it into a fuller picture of your, you know, who you believe your customers are, what your theory of the firm is, as I like to call it, the theory of the firm, what your company really stands for, and who they serve. And one of the things that I think this election showed was that uh, the, I think the thing that I will take away from this election is a distaste for what I would call the probability calculators. I'm not in this business uh, of probability calculation, you know, the, the probability that something is going to happen, which is essentially yeah. a prediction. You know, I'm a, I'm a pollster. I'm a survey researcher. I think I'm good at telling my clients what is, what's happening today. Here's a snapshot of what is happening today. Here's a trend of what has happened over time. Once you start getting into the business of here's what's going to happen in the future, you get into a very different business. And, and uh, the thing I'll, I will put out there about the election is there were a number of people who were putting out probability calculations of the percentage chance that Hillary would be president, that uh, Trump would be president. I'm sure you saw these. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Nate Silver at 538.com was one. You know, Nate Cohn at The New York Times had another one. And as we got closer and closer to Election Day, many of these probability calculators showed that Hillary Clinton had – you know, in the high 80s, if not the low 90s, percentage chance to win. And what the problem with that is, is A, it's a bit of a misunderstanding about the difference between predicting and forecasting. Uh, and B, there's only two things that could have happened here. Number one, the people like Nate Silver who put out these probability forecasts either simply, and I mean simply, averaged all the polls together because he's not a pollster, uh, and in which case anybody could do that, or he put his thumb on the scales. You know, he, he yep. basically had some assumptions and some algorithms that said, you know, I think these polls are better than these other polls. Uh, and, you know, the latter is certainly true. And that was not correct. And so I, I, I think, you know, I, polls have taken it a bit on the chin as a result of this, but I would remind everyone who wants to look this up, that as we got closer and closer to election day, the national tracking polls, the national tracking polls in the Trump-Clinton race showed at the very end showed Hillary up by a percentage. Yeah. And that's exactly what the popular vote is going to come in as. Yep. So they weren't that bad. 
Yep. Well, and and I think also this notion that you know I think a lot of the perception that people have about about the polling quote accuracy was less the polls and more the interpretation or the conclusion or to your point the people with their finger on the scale. Yeah. Saying, well, so and and by the way, I I believe some of it was just a function of the people who wanted one candidate versus another um, just demonstrated their own bias in what information they chose to share and what information they didn't. And I don't even think in most cases it was malintent. I just think it was their own bias creeping in, which is what gets 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 us back to the bias topic to begin with. Well, and here's what I would you know offer up to your your listeners at, at companies across the country and across the world is that if you know very few people and maybe know no one who voted differently than you did, then you might have a problem, especially at the corporate level. You know, your, your circle of friends is your circle of friends. And I think a lot of us had, you know, uh, filter bubble issues with our Facebook feeds and our, and our social media inputs and things like that. But if you are, uh, at a company, you're running a company and you don't, and you literally don't know anybody or don't think you know anybody that voted for Hillary or voted for Trump, whichever side of, of the fence you're on there, uh, I would submit that you have some issues with understanding customers because you know it's it's a coin flip out there when you look nationally at who voted for Trump and who voted for Hillary but in various pockets various pockets of America you know different precincts different counties and I looked at precinct level data all night long. I saw precinct after precinct that went 93% for Clinton, 95% for Trump, 91% for Clinton. You know, I mean, crazy lopsided numbers. That's what a congressional district might look like. And that's, in fact, what your company might look like if you have a local headquarters somewhere. But that kind of – and this is another kind of bias. You know, if you don't know anybody who voted for the other side – extrapolate that to your business. What don't you know about your potential customers? What voices aren't you getting from your market research? What voices aren't you getting in your boardroom? What voices aren't you getting in your brainstorming sessions? And I submit it's a very dangerous thing not to know. Yeah, it's, it's funny. When we're working on messaging with my clients, what I always say to them is, look, so what I want you to do is now that we've got this messaging, I want you to go out and each person should test this with 10 or so different clients and people say, Oh, so we're trying to convince them of the, um, no, 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 no. I don't want you to convince anybody of anything. What I want you to do is present this and say, what do you think? Which part of this resonates and which parts, which part doesn't make sense? Because just because we love it doesn't mean that your clients will. And if 80% of the people you poll love it and 20% don't, then it doesn't mean it's good or bad. It just means of the people you polled, that's what their take was. But it's much better than not polling anybody and just going based on what you thought in a room with three of your buddies. Well, you need the inputs. And, you know, again, there's no such thing as a perfect study. There's no perfect piece of input. But it's a lot better to fly with instruments that you can correct than to fly with no instruments at all. Um, and, you know, honestly – it's that kind of local and regional and, you know, even in your boardroom bias that I think is one of the great dangers of corporate America, that, that we don't have all of the voices 
present in the room that we think we need to have or that or that we ought to have in order to develop products to develop marketing and and, and so on i mean i think the uh you know there's a lot of remarkable statistics that i've seen in my career in exit polling and in political work but also in, in market research work you know there were uh there were over 50 precincts in philadelphia county in 2012 where there was not a single vote cast for Mitt Romney, not one. Wow. And yet, and yet, you know, it, it, it wasn't uh, a landslide for Obama in 2012. Mitt Romney still got over 60 million votes. So uh, if you don't know those people, you run, you run a great risk. And I think if you don't have those voices in your research, you know, number one, you're deluding yourself, but also number two, uh, you're you're denying yourself the potential opportunity to explore different markets that maybe you're not even thinking about, and I I, I do think that this kind of uh, homophily is the, the the fifty cent word for it, but uh, you know homogeneity of of both mindset and you know the feedback you get in in brainstorming sessions and and, and so on I think is a is a really dangerous thing for any company. Yeah, you know it's funny I often I often talk with people who do a lot of work with diversity in businesses and it's it's the same notion it's like look if you don't have somebody of this diverse viewpoint in your boardroom then you very likely don't have your finger on the pulse of that demographic group if you don't have somebody at least advocating for that position in your discussion now obviously polling is going to magnify that but if you don't at least have somebody raising the topic you're probably going to miss them and let me ask you this on election night, what time in the evening did you start to have a sense that things are going differently than other people thought they might? Yeah, you know, I wouldn't even call it the evening. Yeah. Um, you know, so when we do the exit polls, we get three waves during the day. We get a, you know, we get a, a wave of results in the morning, we get a wave of results in the afternoon, and we get a wave of results uh, towards the evening. And that's a very important aspect of this because different demographics vote at different points of the day. Interesting. You know, if, if you are, you know, if you voted at three o'clock in the afternoon, you're, you know, there's a greater chance that you don't have a full-time job. I'm not going to say you don't have a full-time job, but there's a greater chance that you don't, uh, you know, different demographics of people vote first thing in the morning, you know, in the middle of the day when they get out of work and so on. And so we are constantly, uh, monitoring that and modeling for all of that. That's right. By the uh, way, I think statistically, if you're voting between the hours of one in the afternoon and three, af three in the afternoon, you're either not fully employed or you're a podcast host and professional speaker. Which is when I voted. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's when which I voted as well. Exactly. So, um, but go on. I voted, yeah. I voted at three <laughs> o'clock uh, in the afternoon. I, I, was, I, I early voted here in Boston where I live and I was able to just walk over to City Hall at about three o'clock and do That's that. Great. So. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm probably, I, although I am employed, I'm probably unemployable, <laughs> but we, so we, we track those different waves and, you know, I don't, you know, I certainly won't say that we knew how it was going to go at noon, but I will say that at about noon, we realized that, uh, some of the really contentious swing states, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, were going to be closer than people thought. Yep. And so the thing that we knew at noon was, it's going to be a long night. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of the team that we had, because if you if you watched election night TV, you know, you know no matter what channel you watch, because the net the all of the networks are our clients. You know, you didn't hear anybody call 
mistakenly call Wisconsin for Clinton and then have to walk it back sure. or mistakenly call Michigan for Clinton and then have to walk it back. There weren't any retractions. There weren't any errors. Uh, and you didn't hear our name, frankly, which is a good thing. But we knew it was going to be close and we knew it was going to be closer than we thought, even as early as, you know, lunchtime. Uh, and then by by about dinner time, we knew that uh, we should put another pot of coffee on. <laughs> so put, I, I, put another I, urn I, of coffee on. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of coffee that night. Um, you know, and, and I think America finally came to terms with uh, with the results, you know, closer to one o'clock or so. But at that point, uh, <laughs> closer, by the way, closer to one o'clock on November 20th. <laughs> is when most people came to terms with it. Well, but. yeah, there's, there's come to terms and there's heard it reported. You're yeah. right about that. Yeah, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't say what day. You just said one o'clock. So yeah, it's uh, it was. I, I was speaking at an event in um, in Florida. I was at this Ritz Carlton Key Biscayne. Was like, well, you know, what? I'll just watch for a little while longer. And it was three o'clock before I turned off the TV. It was. Uh, um, it was a it was a late night to be up. So I want to I, I want to move from the presidential polling and the the presidential race and talk from a business side about market research and yeah. and polling. So what are the biggest mistakes that you see businesses make when it comes to polling that you know doesn't that just prevents them from getting results they could and should be getting. Well, uh, you know, there's there's a couple here. I think uh, one is to try to get. I mean, there's two real broad types of research that I do. There's qualitative and quantitative. And in quantitative, which you know very well, Ian, where our job is to count things. How many of you know, how many people do this? What else do these people do? Uh, what are the types of media that they consume? What are their you know the what's in the house? And quantitative is really good at that. And I think one of the mistakes that uh, brands make is to try to wedge the why questions into quantitative. And it's quantitative research is not very good at why questions. Um, and things like web metrics and search logs and, and you know all the stuff you get from Google Analytics is really bad at the why questions. Sure. So what I, you know, what I would submit the the biggest thing you could do to improve the consumer insights in your company is to make a an appropriate investment in qual in good solid qualitative research to understand at the individual level get some ideas about why people do things. And you know, a, a piece of qualitative research whether you're interviewing people or doing focus groups or you know, doing ethnographic research where you, you know, move in with a family and watch them do their laundry um, and all that stuff. It's not quantitatively reliable, but what it gives you are theories. It gives you yep. language. It gives you language and theories you can test quantitatively that you didn't come up with. And the, I think the biggest mistake companies make when it comes to research is that they sit in a in a conference room and they come up with the reasons why people might buy their product, or they come up with theories about the personas that of, of people that might be interested in their marketing, and then they go test them quantitatively. And those kinds of things should actually come from customers and not from the marketing team in the boardroom. Yeah. Uh, and if the, when those things come from customers, you can then validate them. You can you can kind of test those theories quantitatively, but it's really difficult to get quality insights and solid insights if your only inputs into the quantitative process are the opinions of your internal team. 
Well, you know, I think it's, I mean, I, I love how you, how you talk about that because one of the things that, that I often explain to people is, look, the, the biggest thing you need to understand is what problem you solve for your clients and why they need it. And very often what I see businesses do is they focus on, well, we're looking for any client who has more than X number of employees or has, you know, more than Y dollars in revenue. And it's all these objective piece of information. But the reality is you're not looking for any company more than that size. You're looking for any company bigger than that size who might be experiencing one of these conditions. And the closer you can get to the way your customer would word it, the better your marketing message is going to resonate with them. Oh, absolutely. And anytime I see a, you know anybody talking about how to market to millennials, uh, my eyes just completely glaze over. <laughs> uh, there's the, there are, you know, there's millions and millions of quote unquote millennials. And the only thing they have in common is how old they are. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's simply not enough. And, and understanding at a deeper level, the psychographic reasons why people make, you know, why people make the decisions they do is, it, it, you know, it's, it's sort of the essential question for any business. And what I, what I would submit, especially for your listeners who are involved with any kind of internet marketing or any kind of transactional business on the internet is two things. Number one, the way that we buy, how we buy has changed irrevocably thanks to the internet. You know, in the past 20 years, how we buy things has changed almost beyond recognition for someone who's been tracking it for, for that period of time, as I have. You think about the the distance between sales and marketing 20 years ago, they were very distinct entities. You know, sales, sales went out and talked to the customers. Marketing was really responsible for demand. And then you have Amazon come along and you have sales and marketing start to become really kind of mixed together. You get this kind of transactional marketing. Oh, you bought this. You might like these other things. Uh, you know, people who bought this also bought that. And that's this sort of dicey area between marketing and sales. What is it? And then today, in, in 2016, nearly 2017, the distinctions between sales and marketing are as narrow as they've ever been. We're sort of all smarketalsers. Yep. Uh, as, a, as a result of that, we, we're all kind of smarketalsing. And I think the danger of that is that we forget in some ways – what marketing is really all about. We forget in some ways what sales is really all about. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're, they're two very different disciplines. They should be measured in two very different ways. But in, in a lot of cases today, you have marketing measured on, you know, leads and they get those leads from different marketing activities. But just because I sign up for a white paper doesn't mean I actually want them in the market for your product, you know. Uh, so there, there's, there's, I think, a lot of troubling issues between sales and marketing and, and the confusion between the two. Uh, and I, what I would recommend, I think, to, to people listening to this, if you're in sales or marketing, is, is focus. You know, focus on, on, on the sales discipline or focus on the marketing discipline and uh, not to fall into the trap of smarketalsing. Yeah, well, and and I think that nowadays a lot of it, since a lot of our listeners are in that B two B space, a lot of it nowadays is the customer who initially does some research by visiting, doing some searching and, and visiting your website and getting some content. Then they speak with somebody, and guess what? As soon as you walk out of the room, they're back 
trying to find information to support what you just said. Yes. And I think the big gap that often happens is that the salesperson says, no, no, I'm not involved in marketing. So they don't give any input to marketing. And yep. marketing doesn't really get in, talk to sales about, well, what are the big objections that your clients are raising so we can create content around that? And in those environments, it becomes dangerous. One of the trends that I pointed to in my trends article for 2017 is that content marketing, in essence, becomes part of sales, recognizing that, look, it's an integral part of the way customers make decisions. And if you try and have marketing people work in a vacuum – they're going to be throwing darts, not knowing where the board is. Well, this is, I mean, this is exactly my point. I mean, one of the, uh, you know, I mentioned before what, what has changed a great deal is how we buy things. The transactional nature of the Internet has changed how we buy things. Here's what has not changed, how we decide to buy things. How we decide to buy things has never changed. Uh, it, we are very irrational actors, And I I think one of the ways for someone in marketing to become an endangered species, you know, content marketing is is a quick way to do that in some ways. I I think, you know, content marketing can be very, very effective. I think there are some fantastic examples of content marketing. But, you know, sort of the hygiene level of content marketing is really taking what great salespeople say and writing it down. Yeah. And that is not the path to distinguish yourself as a marketer, I would say. But how we decide to buy things has never changed. And what I think, I think you delude yourself if you are a content marketer, if you believe that uh, a piece of content has changed somebody's mind. Any one piece of content has changed someone's uh, perception or belief about your product. What generally happens is something else happens, something irrational, something emotional, and people make up their uh, their lizard brain, as Seth Godin would say, or at least some irrational part of their mind that, you know what, I'm going to go with this company. I'm going to buy this car. I'm going to try this yogurt. And they do it largely for irrational reasons. And a lot of what passes for content marketing now is the kind of post decision rationalization collateral that we put out there saying, see, I told you, this is good. Or we do it to ourselves. Like you, you, you know, the, on some level you decide I'm going to buy this thing. And then this part of your brain called the reticular activating system only sees articles going forward that give good reviews to that or point out the positive features of that. There's some level of you that's already made the decision and, and a lot of this marketing content and collateral is kind of post-decision rationalization. Yeah, you know what? I, I agree. With you. I think there's a lot of stuff that people do that's that post-justification. I, I believe the content that can make a difference is the content that gets people that, – that helps the, the client, especially in a B2B world, see that you are objective and you're trustworthy. Meaning if you say, here's why we're the greatest thing since sliced bread, then – the potential client reads it and says, well, I, this is totally biased, so I don't know what to believe. If you said, if you wrote a piece that said, by the way, if you're looking for a speaker for this event talking about market research, here's why Tom would be a great guest for you or a great speaker for you. And here are the two or three situations where he probably wouldn't be. Your trust level goes up exponentially because they say, you know what, this guy is like – so candid about where he's a fit and where he's not that now I trust that we're going to get honest information from him. So we don't need to be as guarded as we were before. Yeah. The, you know, I think we're going to see, uh, and I, I, 
I would bet you would agree with this, Ian, although I would not put words in your mouth, but the the trusted advisor model uh, I, I think is going to continue to grow and grow and gain momentum. And, and when I say trusted advisor, I think that means that you're not only selling your own products and services, but in some cases you're selling your competitors' products Absolutely. and services, uh, which would have been anathema to you 10 years ago, five years ago even. But if you what your goal is is not necessarily to sell your to sell your stuff but to solve the problems of your customer and in many cases it might actually be your competitors wares that solve the problems of your of your customer and if they perceive you as helping them solve those problems that's a lifetime relationship that's yeah, worth cultivating absolutely they'll be they'll be a customer for life because you've built enough trust now that even if you don't sell them what you were hoping to sell them in that interaction they will always call you first. It's, it's one of these things where very often someone will talk to me about, let's say, a keynote for an event, and I ask them, what are you trying to accomplish? And partway through the discussion, I realize I'm not the best person, even if I'm available on their date. I'm not the best person for this, but I know who is. Yeah. And invariably, the next question that comes out is, well, we have these other two events. Which of these two would you be interested in? Because at that point, they're so confident that you're – interested in their outcome, not in making the sale, that it changes everything. And I don't know how you poll for that, but um, but I think it's just it's a behavior that is lacking in a lot of businesses today. I agree. And I, I think if there's one thing I've learned in my, you know, 25 years in, in business, it's that the, you know, Ian Altman, the world needs you, the world needs you to do the things you're good at. Uh, the world needs me to do the things I am good at. And, you know, for everybody listening here, there's that thing that you're really, really good at. The world needs you to do that. And every minute you spend not doing those things is, you know, you're, you're denying the world that, that treasure in some ways. Uh, and so when I am confronted with opportunities where, yes, I, you know, maybe I could get this gig or maybe I could get this job, but I see someone else who would be better at doing it, I will 1,000% of the time uh, recommend that other person because number one, it's going to it's going to increase the out it's going to make the outcome better for the, for them, but also number two, I'm going to be spending more time doing the thing that the world needs me to do. My one little unique niche of this world that is my my the quirky thing I'm good at. Um, and I think when you you know when you're younger, and I, I don't want to uh, you know sound like the old man, get off my lawn. I think when <laughs> when you're when you're younger, you want to you want to try and do everything. And I think once you start to get uh, in your 40s and 50s, it's not so much I don't want to try new things. It's you know what I have I'm really good at this thing, and this is the thing I have to give to the world. And it's it's better <laughs> it's better for the world. If I do this as opposed to, to doing something else, and, and that's sort of where I, where, you know, where I am in my career, and that's not at, you know, in any way, shape, or form to suggest that I'm not continually out there learning new things because I am a lifelong and, and voracious learner of new things, but it's through the filter of the things that I am good at. And I think when you are actually you know, when there is a, a differential you have that you're actually really, really good at this thing and not good at these other things – Stop doing those other things <laughs> and do the thing you're really good at. You know what? That's you know what? It's it's great. It's great wisdom, and I want to leave it at that because that's it's a it's a profound statement. Um, and I will tell our audience also if you ever have a chance to be in an audience where Tom is speaking and you're trying to decide between two sessions, I promise you 
whoever was in the other place, even if it's me, you want to be in Tom's session because <laughs> you're, you're going to get a lot of – you know what? You're going to share a lot of wisdom and you do it in such a such an enjoyable and entertaining way. There's a lot of people who would probably um, wonder, well, how can you make talking about research interesting and fun and yet you have a gift for doing that? And so people should make sure to take advantage of that when they can. What's the best way for people to find you and get a hold of you, Tom? Sure. Well, I have a I have a blog at brandsavant.com and my company Edison Research is at edisonresearch.com and I'm also I'm on the Twitters uh Ian, I don't know about you. I'm on the Twitters at uh webby w e b b y webby2001.com which was cool when it was my AOL handle and it's not as cool as it used to be. It still works though, man. It still works. Well, you can find me. It still works, and that's the important part. So, Tom, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom with us and giving some insight into what we learned in this election and what people should be doing in their market research. It was a pleasure having you on. My great pleasure, Ian. Thank you. There's some great wisdom that Tom shared. Let me give you a quick 30-second recap of some of the key things I think you can take away and apply to your business right away. First, there's a great misconception that polling – didn't work effectively. And the reality is the data were very accurate. It's just how people use it. So make sure you're using the data properly when you do polling. Second, recognize that there's always some level of bias when you survey people. So if you're just getting an audience of five or six people, it's going to be highly skewed. So you really need to seek out better sample sizes to make sure it better represents your population. And finally, make sure to go just not just to the quantitative information, but also qualitative that will give you better insight about your audience. Thanks again for taking the time to subscribe and share the program with your friends. Remember, this program gets its direction from you, the listeners. So if there's a guest you think I should have on, if there's a topic you'd like me to cover, just drop me a note at ian at ianaltman.com. Have an amazing week, add value, and grow revenue in a way everybody can embrace, even your customer.